Please join with me in turning to Genesis chapter 28, which is found on page 22 and 23 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. If you are uh, newly joining us in this series through the book of Genesis, which speaks of origins, so there you got the beginning of the universe. Uh, Genesis, by the way, can be broken up into two base, basically two different sections. Genesis chapters 1 to 11, which is the history leading up to the patriarchs, and then you have Genesis chapters 12 to the end, which is the history of the patriarchs. Uh, we find ourselves in uh, the history of the patriarchs, and today we look at this transition between Isaac to then Jacob. And our character today, if you're, once again, if you're newly joining us, he is on the run and is in a very bad situation. Last week, just to catch us all up, uh, we looked at a very famous story of two brothers, twins, Esau and Jacob, who were wrestling, so to speak, even from the womb, but then especially outside of the womb. They were wrestling for a blessing that God had determined to go to only one of them, Jacob. And last week's story, and what unfolds here, is really a sad story of trickery, of deception, desperation, and, and not only of the brothers, but of everybody involved here as they suffer the consequences of their own sin. Isaac, the forefather Isaac, he insists on trying to bless the one that God had not chosen, Esau. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, in her own desperation, tries to secure God's promises for the son that she loves, that is Jacob, and she encourages this blatant lying in the face of God. She even encourages Jacob to walk in the footsteps of Satan, lying and twisting God's truth. And unfortunately, Jacob, he just sort of goes along with the plan. And as man's plans unfold, Isaac realizes his plans are futile. Rebekah's actions has started this chain reaction. Esau gives in to his passions and is set, determined on killing his very own brother. And Jacob has to flee for his very own life. As Genesis shifts focus from Isaac to Jacob, here, once again, Jacob is in a very bad situation. It is not good. I mean, imagine living that life, always having to look over your shoulder. I mean, some of you guys know what this is like. Maybe people have been after you, even if that's a creditor. Imagine always, always having to choose to sit in a safe place in a movie theater. I had, I had, a, I had friends uh, who actually were in quite bad situations. And so they, incurred, they told us to sit behind them so that they might not get physically harmed. And I guess we would be left to get physically harmed. <laughs> Never leave your back to the window. Sit where you can see everything. This is a life of paranoia and a life of fear. And as the story unfolds, God teaches us, just as he was teaching Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, all the patriarchs of the faith, that God is a God who draws near and makes himself known. God is a God who delivers, and all of this by his own initiative. Keep in mind, this story that we look at today comes right on the heels where all of man's plans lead them downward. And so here, by God's grace, you have God doing all these things, revealing himself, drawing near, making himself known, delivering all 
by his own initiative. If you're taking notes, by the way, uh, I may frustrate you today because I don't have any particular outline, uh, just as last week, although normally I do have an outline. We're just going to simply walk through the passage, uh, but nevertheless, I pray that you guys would find it helpful. Let's start actually in Genesis chapter 27, verse 46. Genesis chapter 27, verse 46. And that's really where this section uh, begins here. You see that this, this section kicks off our whole entire story of Genesis chapter 28. And remember, Esau has pledged to murder his brother. So to get Jacob out of the house and on the road, because Rebekah's favorite son, here is, his, her, his life is threatened, she kind of brings up in a sneaky way almost a secondary reason uh, to her husband for why he needs to get out of here. Look there, 2746. And it says this. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Certainly a bit dramatic. But what she appears to know is that God had cursed the Canaanites and the Hittites were part of the broader peoples of, uh, called the Canaanites. So Rebecca is only doing here um, what Abraham did that led Isaac to marry her. So in a previous chapter there, Abraham goes and says, No, we will not take a wife for the Canaanites for my son Isaac. Instead, you go, servant, find a wife from my very own people. And Isaac, having learned his lesson that it never pays off to sidestep the will of God, here he agrees and blesses Jacob. Look there at 28 verses 1 to 5. I'll read the whole thing there. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So basically what's going on here is that Isaac wants Jacob to go to his uncle, Rebekah's brother Laban, and seek a wife from there. And he, he finally gets around to pronouncing this blessing on his son, the, the God's chosen one. Right in the previous section, there he tried to bless the son that was not chosen. But here, after he gives way to the sovereignty of God, he recognizes that there's nothing that he can do to stop the sovereignty of God. He can't sidestep the will of God. Finally, he blesses the right son. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples, lots of peoples. It was one of the promises that God had given Abraham. I'm going to make many people come from you. And then he's going to be a blessing. Look there at verse 4. And then one of the offspring will be a blessing. Everybody will be blessed, and then he, they will also take possession of the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. So here again, we're talking about the succession of promises to Abraham. 
then to Isaac, and then now to the chosen son, Jacob. And so he is sent out to find a wife. So on one level, Jacob should be encouraged, right? God's blessing is upon him. He is the chosen one. Publicly, this is finally recognized. But we know from personal experience, while we might have the blessings of God, like salvation, like forgiveness, like eternal life, God himself, fellowshipping with the almighty God, our situations and circumstances can make us doubt those promises. It clouds our vision of the things that God has promised us. It even clouds our vision of God himself, right? When we're, when we're in difficult circumstances, because we've got to keep in mind that what originally sends him out isn't, hey, we want you to be blessed. It's your brother's going to murder you. And so you better get out of here. No doubt Jacob leaves a blessed man as he stands an inheritor of the land. But who really feels blessed with the prospect of being prematurely buried in it? Right? That, I think, is what's mostly on his mind here. I am escaping from my own brother. It's fascinating to see the contrast here as Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. It's fascinating to see this contrast here. As Jacob's mind gets a bit clouded by God, uh, sorry, as, he, as it gets clouded, uh, Esau is given a moment of clarity. Jacob's mind gets clouded under the threat of murder. Into the desert he goes. Esau is given a moment of clarity. But this, I mean, he can only do what a sinful man does who rejects God. Verses 6 to 9 say that Esau saw, he heard that his father blessed Jacob. And charged him not to take a Canaanite wife. So what he does is he says, wow, this pleases my father. So I am going to get me a non-Canaanite wife. And instead of going to his father's people, he goes to the Ishmaelites. Right? So on one level, we want to cheer for Esau. Yay, because you want to please your father. But on one level, we want to rebuke him. He's going to the Ishmaelites. I mean, why doesn't he ask his father, the rightful heir to the promises of Abraham, why doesn't he ask his father to look for a wife from his own people? And then on top of that, we should read this and say, okay, I don't see how Esau's problems are going to get any better in taking a wife when he already has two. God designed, as we know from Genesis chapter 2, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, no doubt there are people in here who are taking multiple wives. We see that regularly. Thank God that in his grace, he still uses the people in the day and he redeems their situation, even though they may sin. But while there is a contrast between these two brothers, there's also, there are also similarities. Both Jacob and Esau, they flex to make, make things right. Esau flexes and says, I'm going to take me a non-Canada wife because this pleases his father. And Jacob, we see him flexing in a little bit. We just saw him flexing in the previous chapter, trying to p take hold of the promises and grasp after them, though in a timing that was not God's. Apart from the grace of God, they cannot make things right, no matter how hard they flex. And again, we see this as the chapter unfolds. So we see how Jacob's action then leads to anguish and failure 
And he is in the desert and to some degree in danger. And this we see this in the rest of the chapter here from 10 to the end of chapter 28. Uh, but this is where we see in Jacob's danger, we see God drawing near and then making himself known. This is a theme that we've already seen in previous chapters. But yet again, because men are so thick headed, just like we are, so is Jacob and we identify with him. So God makes it clear once again. He is a God who draws near and makes himself known all by his own initiative. Look there at verses 10 um, to the end. Actually, I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing and then we'll walk through this, this uh, verse by verse. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took, took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. But Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Verses 10 and 11, so Jacob sets off. Bad situation. Behind him awaits a brother ready for war. Ahead of him, though he doesn't know at the time, stands a family member ready to deceive him. It's not a good situation. In fact, we ought to read it and feel that it's quite unsettling, full of discomfort, full of darkness, literally. He sets off on this 500-mile journey. He doesn't get very far before he is prevented from going any further. Verse 11, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Now again, we should hear, dun, 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 this is not good. You know, he's wandering in whose land? It's his by promise, but it's not his in actuality. He doesn't possess any of it or hardly any, any of it. He's an inheritor of a burial plot. That's about it. So there's a king who rules over this land that he wanders through, and his life is threatened. Again, brother ready for war behind him, family ahead of him who wants to deceive him. Darkness arrives. And while he may have been traveling with others, Moses, again the author, he chooses only to mention him. Here in this desperation, this desert land, 
So needing something for protection and something for a pillow, verse 11 says, he took a stone and put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I wonder how many of you guys feel that there is something behind you ready for war. You don't know what lies ahead of you. Someone trying to deceive you. Ill health, bad prognosis, difficult marriage situation, reconciliation that you know will be trying and testing. This is similar to Jacob's situation, isn't it? In the darkness of the desert, because your son, so to speak, has set. But the wonderful thing is, once again, God is a God who draws near. In his own desert wanderings, in this defenselessness of the night under the threat of murder, God draws near to him and gives him a dream. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You know, as one commentator points out, many of us have been taught this story with all of its details. However, while many of us have been taught this story and its details, we are not taught its significance. So what, what's going on here? I mean, some of you might even remember being taught this story. Perhaps you've seen a picture of a fresco, you know, a wall painting of this very scene. And, you know, if you just type in Jacob and the angels, Jacob and the vision, you will come up with all these various pictures on Google uh, and there's one where Jacob, you know, of course, every biblical character at that time is half naked. Don't know why he would be half naked in the cold of the night, but he's half naked. And his upper body looks like he is a CrossFit enthusiast, bulging pectoral muscles, massive biceps like mountains. And then there's the issue of the angels. They look like they're posing for Vogue on the ladder that is their runway. But what are they doing there? Where are they going? Are they just there like we all used to be, and some of you are, you know, like little children like to go up the escalator and down the escalator, and this is just a fun thing that they do? Well, I think we're helped to understand the scene by breaking down exactly what he sees. He sees first a ladder. A better translation would be a stairway. So it, and it starts from the heavens, and it touches down upon the earth. And what it symbolizes is access. So if I can have you guys close your, mind, uh, close your eyes and just imagine, picture the scene here of Jacob having this vision and there's a stairway. Most of us, as the artists of all those Google images show, as it just so happens to be one flight of stairs. You can open your eyes now, by the way. Um, you know, 15 steps, 14 steps. That's not very impressive, is it? We today live in a different era than Jacob did. We see flights of stairs all the time. We can go to the mall and we might see multiple flights of stairs. And we get access to stories, various stories, you know, second story, third story. And it's no big deal. But a better way to get a feel for what's going on is imagine having access to an observation deck. The Empire State Building. The Burj Khalifa, tallest building in the world. Me and my family had an opportunity to go up the Burj Khalifa to this observation deck on the 125th floor. 
That's impressive. So when you think stairway, or in that case, an elevator, you think access to this place I have not seen before. And what is not only the treat and the attraction is not only getting, or not only the observation deck itself, though that is amazing, but the actual access that you have to get there. So you go up these 125 floors and guess how many minutes? One minute. That's two stories every second, right? That's access. It's part of the attraction. So here, that's what this stairway symbolizes. Access to heaven. You know, Genesis 28 is not the only chapter that speaks about people trying to get access to heavens. Genesis 11 tells the story, the Tower of Babel, of people, sinful people, striving to get access to the heavens. And there was this tower, a, a ziggurat, basically, that had stairs that reached to the skies. Genesis 11 even says that its top was in the heavens. That's Genesis 11.4. So this is the Tower of Babel that was built by people in order to reach the heavens in their pride and to gain greater Access. They built higher stories and greater stairs. The greater the supposed access to the position of heaven. But in this dream, God is the one who gives the dream. And it isn't sinful people trying to reach up to heaven, but it is a holy God coming down to man. This is access here. The second thing he sees there are the angels. This is the second element of his dream. And we gather an idea for why the angels were ascending and descending from the rest of scripture as well. Right? They're not just posing, looking beautiful, for example. We know that uh, from Genesis and the rest of scriptures that God did not create angels to be chubby babies with wings whose sole purpose is to decorate our homes. Rather, God created angels as his very agents sent to do his bidding in Genesis 3:24 to guard in Genesis 19:1-22 to protect and then also in Genesis to deliver the divine word to sinful man so they serve on behalf of God ministering to God's chosen as Hebrews 1:14 says they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is incredible. How exactly these angels of God are dispatched to guard, to protect, to deliver word today, ministering to us who are to inherit salvation, I don't know. But that's pretty amazing. So there lays Jacob, God's chosen one, by the way, who sees God's heavenly soldiers dispatched to help him. The one to whom these promises are going to Abraham, to Isaac, now to Jacob. And that's exactly what they do in the chapters to come. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 11, God, uh, the angels give him divine guidance. In Genesis 32, after his family causes him to suffer, he leaves to go back home. And as he and his new family go, the Bible says the angels of God met him. So regarding the stairs, the dream is about access. Regarding the angels, this is about God sending the host of heaven to protect God's chosen one. And last of all, we have the Lord. 
And in verse 13, right, what is he doing? He is standing above it all, presiding over this all. He is the one who rends the heavens. He is the one who establishes, touches down here on earth. And he is the one who is dispatching his angels. And he is the one who is drawing near to Jacob in the midst of his sin. I wonder for you, what threatens you this morning? Do you see God as a God who draws near to you? I wonder if you come this morning fearing. This, this vision here has a word for us. Do we? Are you in need of divine help? God here says, look to him. He's the one who is standing over it all. Dispatching his heavenly beings and all of his resources really to guard and to protect and to give his divine word to those whom he determines can inherit salvation. This here should point us directly to lay all of our cares and concerns at the foot of the cross where we have divine help. In terms of the word, that's exactly what God does there. Look at verses 13 and 15. God here gives his promises. Jacob might have all of these visions, but did you notice that it requires a divine word to actually solidify all these things, to give all of these things its meaning? Now, remember, Jacob here is in sin. He's experiencing the very effects of sin, the consequences of it. He and his mom have plotted against his father, against his brother. Now he lives the consequences of it. His life is in danger. And we would assume now that God would give a certain type of word to a very sinful man. Maybe God would rend the heavens and the angels would strike fear in the hearts of people. Maybe they actually would fear and repent and believe. But if you look at 13 to 15, let's go ahead and read that. What is it that God says? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. Isn't that mind-boggling? Because just in the previous chapter, he tried to grasp after the promises all on his own and failed. And here, God doesn't come to rebuke him. He comes and says, I'm going to give it to you. And to your offspring, I give it to them. Your offspring, by the way, shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west to the east, to the north, and to the south, everywhere. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's not a single statement about what he, Jacob, just did. There's only statements here about what God, who God is and then what he will do. All in rapid succession, rapid fire affirmation. I give you this land, I give it to your offspring. Your offspring will be dust like the earth. They will be everywhere in every direction, and in you, and in your offspring, will all of the families be blessed. These are all the promises that we read about before. Promises that God, by his grace, sent upon Abraham, that he would be a blessing, that he would inherit a land, that he would have much offspring. And now they're all set on Jacob, from the very first time heard uh, from God directly. But what's... So encouraging here 
is what God says next in 15. Continuing to talk about what he says he will do. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. So what's made explicit is that the the one who gives the covenant promise backs it with his presence and his power. That's what's explicit here. The one who gives the covenant promise backs it with his presence and his power. This has been implicit in Genesis, and now it's been made explicit, at least when it comes to the promises. He pledges so explicitly his presence. So, the thing that you fear, you know, where you might think that you have fallen out of God's view. I mean, do you ever feel like that? That whatever it is, whatever struggle you go through, you've fallen out of the view of God. You know, his view is only so limited. If you're like me, you probably have wrestled with that. And in so doing, you kind of think of God as like a limited God. A limited parent. Who maybe loses track of his own children. Of his own people. Unaware of his people's sufferings. And so maybe in order to get some of his attention, we sort of cry out for him in a way that sort of accuses him of being a neglectful God. But thank the Lord. I mean, just imagine for yourselves, right? Is God really like that? I mean, we are all created in God's image. He created the world. He created us to be in fellowship with him. And, and we too, you know, even, even bad parents have certain good tendencies. Even bad parents, Scripture says, want to give their children, generally speaking, good gifts. Even bad parents and neglectful parents think of really good things to give them, their children, and even really bad parents sometimes are aware of their children's suffering. Isn't that really interesting? Bad parents sometimes are aware of their children's suffering, all their scrapes and their bruises, about what dogs them, about what discourages them, and then how to help them. In that moment, even when that type of parent is thinking of these things, it reflects the character of God, doesn't it? That our Father is like that parent, but who never fails, and whose view is not limited, but a God who knows the sufferings of His children. All the things that you today may be dogged down with. He knows about those things. He knows about your scrapes and your bruises. He's aware, and here he pledges that. He pledges his presence. And with this presence comes power and protection. He says, I will keep you, and I will make you return safely home. I'll bring you back to this land. I mean, how encouraging is that? You know, when the circumstances of life, either when we are running away from the will of God, when we are repenting and believing, God says, you might run, I'm going to bring you back. He says the circumstances of life, like Jacob knows, because of a famine he might leave. Abraham knew this, because of a famine he left. He says, look, you might leave because of circumstances, but I'm going to bring you back. You are sent out, you are basically exiled of the land because somebody wants to murder you. I'm going to bring you back. And almost anticipating Jacob's fear and doubt, that same fear and doubt that we experience when we go through trials, tribulations, God gives a guarantee. Now, when humans want a guarantee, 
let's say, proof that somebody's going to fulfill their word, we want something like collateral. We want something like a down payment. You know, if we take out a loan on our house, we say, if we default on a loan, you can come and take my house. Right? We want something tangible here. But God does something very strange that only, by the way, God can do. He says, I anticipate your doubt, I anticipate your fear, so let me give you a guarantee. I'll give you another word. Who gives guarantees with another word? Or who guarantees their word with another word? And this is what he says in the last half of 15. For, just just to make this clear, guys, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He says, I'm the one who makes promises and I'm the one who fulfills them. And so I will be with you every single step of the way. Of course, this is entirely logical, right? If the promise does not start with man and its fulfillment does not come by the works of man, of course God is going to see us through till the very end. And what a rebuke this must have been for Jacob. Because he's the one who just flexed and failed. Jacob's experiencing the consequences of his failure. Trying to secure the promises by lying to his father and lying to his creator. What a rebuke this must have been. God says, look, you can flex all you want, but I am going to do this for you. God says, I will do it and I will never leave you. And these are unconditional promises. Thank God, right, for his grace. If you just take a pause right here and note what's going on in this dream, in the midst of Jacob's failures, God meets them with unconditional promises. And we figured Jacob would shout for joy, right? Rejoice that Yahweh is my rear guard. That was his name, by the way. That's what it means. Yahweh is my rear guard. He might say, praise the Lord. I am not worthy of the least of these acts of your sovereign grace and steadfast love. I fail and God, you have drawn near to me to deliver me. But sadly, he doesn't do that. He is a sinful man which should be an encouragement to us that we can identify with Jacob so much and yet in our sin, God continues to draw near to us. But he doesn't do that because he doesn't fully get what he is getting. What is he getting? He's getting Yahweh himself. The God who flung the stars into space, that Yahweh is his rear guard. He gets not only protection from that God, but he gets presence. He gets fellowship. He gets forgiveness and grace and mercy and salvation. But he doesn't quite get it. It takes being conned by an uncle, laboring for 14 years, more protection of God, more evidences from God before he actually gets it and says those things there. I am not the least of these acts of your sovereign grace and steadfast love. Sadly, once again, for this moment, Jacob doesn't get it. And we see this in Jacob's response. And the section really shows us how similar the brothers are apart from the grace of God. Esau is a little slow. Jacob is too. Now, there are good things in this response, and there are not definitely sinful things. So let's look at the good things here in verse 18. Uh, and really, all these good things kind of testify to Jacob's shame. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. 
oil would become uh, like a ceremonial rite that dedicates something to God. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. You know, Moses is writing this after the fact, and he's saying, look, you're not going to know where this place is unless I say its prior name. It, it, it uh, is Bethel. It was called Luz. Uh, but, but going back to the rock, I mean, how awesome is that rock? The object that represented great discomfort and potential danger of having to fend for himself, that same object is now used to memorialize the promise of God's blessing, his presence, his power, his protection, and his devotion. Where once he might have relied on that rock all by himself in the lonesome of the night, now that rock stands as a testament that Yahweh is who he is, that Yahweh is Jacob's rear guard but the good is offset by his blunder this is where he doesn't get it look at what he says in response to god's unconditional promises there in verse 20 then jacob made a vow saying if god will be with me and will keep me in the way that i go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that i come again to my father's house in peace then the lord shall be my god And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is astounding, really. What goes on in the mind of a human to do this? God, the Lord over all things, make unconditional promises to sinners of blessing, of grace. And man responds, not with wholehearted commitment, not with wholehearted thanksgiving, Not with wholehearted rejoicing with joy, but with a condition. God says, I am the Lord. I've proven myself faithful to Abraham. I've proven myself faithful to Isaac. Just as I flung the stars into space, so I fling babies into wombs. I am the Lord over all, who creates something out of nothing, who rescued Abraham from the hands of his enemies, who redeems your sins and even uses the worst of situations for good. I'm going to give you this land. I am going to give you offspring. I am going to multiply your people and make them great. I will use you to bless the nations. And from start to finish, I pledge myself to you. And then Jacob responds, If God, then the Lord will be my God. If God will be with me, but God just promised that he will. If God will keep me, God just promised that he would. If God will sustain me, that's inherent in the promises that many offspring are going to come from you. You can't make offspring if you're dead. So we got to think, what's going on here in Jacob's mind where God draws near to him all by his grace and mercy and says, I will do it all for you. And clearly you see your failure. What goes on in his mind to respond to the unconditional promise with conditions? We don't get it either sometimes, don't we? I think what clouds this vision of God is fear. It's temporal circumstances. It's amazing that God here promises Jacob all these things, and they all have to, many of them have to do with looking down into eternity. Down through the generations. I will give you offspring so many that they spread out in every single gener- every single direction. 
He says, I'm going to make you inherit all of this land. But then again, he only inherits this burial plot there. He wants him to look down far into the character of God and the promises that stem from God. But Jacob here, what is he thinking about in all these conditions? He's concerned uh, not with offspring, but his own life. Concerned not with blessing the nations, but his very own self. Concerned not with future generations, but only one. If God will be with me. If God will keep me in the way that I go. If God gives me bread to eat so that I come to my father's house, then that God will be my God. You guys ever make a conditional promise to God? Out of desperation where God brings you to your end? So at one point in time where I made a conditional promise to God, and I said, Lord, I do not want to die. If you save me, I give you myself. I know exactly what Jacob's talking about. And really what concerns me there in that situation is a whole lot of me and not so much God. And what's on the forefront of our mind that makes God so blurry is fear. Maybe even the consequences of sin. Something in that moment is greater than God himself. But if we, and if we must pledge ourselves to God, God must first remove that so-called obstacle that, from our path, and then we give ourselves to God. And that thing is a functional idol. Jacob here, he has no excuse to, to not believe. God has already shown him so much, exactly who he is, and yet he's struggling here with fear. And he has no excuse not to believe. From this passage, there's nothing that indicates that he hesitates to believe what he saw in this vision. In other words, he thinks that this is legit. God has genuinely made himself known. There's a stairway, access to God. You see these angels. God here audibly speaks to him in this vision. The angels remind him that the appointed messengers are there to protect him, even in his difficulty, as God's chosen one. And the Lord Yahweh is over all things. But yet he sees only the next step. This is a reminder to us of us. And there's so many reasons why we ought to submit our lives to God Almighty. He created us. He therefore has rightful rule over us. We have sinned against him by choosing to do things our way time and time again. Yet he calls us to repent and he gives us opportunity to, to repent. Yet we don't. We ought to respond immediately to his call for us to repent and believe, and we ought to do it with great gratitude for grace and his mercy and salvation and forgiveness. Yet we don't. And even where some of us might consider following Jesus, we say like Jacob, only if God does such and such, then he will be my God. If God would deliver me from this financial trouble, I will follow you forever, God. If God would give me a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I pledge myself to you. If only God would give me a job, forever yours I will be. If only God would heal my relative. I dedicate myself to serving you. If that is you, let me suggest that your vision of who God is has really become clouded. Since when do created beings put conditions on the Creator? Uh, what kind of person feels or thinks that they have a right to 
to make demands of God and the rank to make him do them as if you were trying to determine whether he is a suitable God for you or not. We might say, in response to a person who thinks these things, that you see yourself as more of a lofty God looking to hire a slave. To Jacob, we ought to say, uh, you know, the Lord will be Lord regardless of your proposition. And regardless if you name him my God or not. So maybe what you need to consider is not your required conditions for your life as if you were God, but the fact that he is God. If you're visiting with us this morning and you might be exploring Christianity, this is who we think that God is. He is our creator. He is our maker. He is our judge. And he is our savior. All this is in Genesis. And all of this is in the word who he is and what he does demands, in fact, our worship. He possesses all right and is the highest rank. And we want to be clear on this. And you may be happy living as if you were God, claiming right and rank. But there will come a time when you will find yourself moved over. There's this rapper, Grammy-nominated rapper, he's a Christian, and uh, a number of us have met him and know him. His Trip Lee is his name, and this is what he says to those living in a fantasy. He says, you should know your beauty, your glory will be moving over when he cracks the sky like a supernova to expose us. That's reality. If heaven really does touch down here on earth and there is one king who makes himself known here as his kingdom is in heaven, so it will be on earth. When that time comes, we will be moving over. Thank God we, like Jacob, have every reason to believe. In fact, we have even greater reason to believe, to embrace, to submit, to rejoice. This story of Jacob and the angels, this story will be known throughout the generations. As Aaron read earlier, Jesus actually refers to it. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. This one event here would make Jacob and his vision pale in comparison. Forget access to God and angels here and, and a ladder to heaven. What Jesus refers to here, it, pale, uh, it makes these things pale in comparison. There's one person and the events of his entire life that Jacob in this dream pointed to. That is, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing in its entirety again, this handful of verses. You can tell it's on the mind of the people here. Uh, Jesus is calling his disciples, and he says there, it says there in 43, it, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And included in that following is discipleship, is honor, is worship, is giving glory to the one to whom glory is due. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, "We have found him, of whom Moses in the law, of which Genesis is a part, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." Nathanael said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said to him, "Come and see." 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says, look, you're impressed with the fact that I saw you and I knew you when you were under the fig tree? He says, you will be impressed when you see heaven open and angels ascend and descend on me. This is a direct reference to Jacob's vision here. And we read this account and we're like, oh my goodness, these angels are amazing. What exactly are they doing going up and down this ladder to heaven? We want to see angels. We might be tempted to know, like, what are they doing? These heavenly messengers dispatched at the hand of God to do who knows what. And now they come down to earth. And Jesus says, look, you want to be impressed. You look at me. That's me. Heaven touches down on earth in me. You think the place where God revealed Jacob's vision was great? Look to Christ, who is the full and final revelation of God. You want access to God and to the heavens? You go to Christ. You think Jacob was the chosen one whom the spirits ministered to? He says you look to the chosen one, the Messiah of God, the God-man, who is the subject of all the host of heaven's praises. He says if you want to know the presence of God, look to Christ himself who walked amongst us. God in Christ is drawn near. Do you see what you get? Does that conquer the fears that you experience, the consequences of your very own sin? In man's great desperation, being guilty of sin, and out of fellowship of, with God, right? That's the biggest predicament of man. It isn't stress. It isn't the effects of sin like anxiety or even broken bodies. It is the fact that we are out of fellowship with God himself. But where we rebel against God, God in his faithfulness draws near. In Christ Jesus, he lives a perfect life, dies the death we should have died. He solves all of our problems when we are in the darkness of night. And we might not even realize that being born into sin hostile against God, alienated to the one who created us, God draws near to rebuild this relationship. Heaven touches down on earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he calls you to repent and believe if you do not already know him. Just like Jacob had a chance to repent and believe, just like Esau had a chance to repent and believe and draw near to him. Through acknowledging him as the Lord and Savior of the world who died on the cross for sinners and who got up from the dead three days later so that forgiveness and right standing would be given to men in their desperate situation of being sinners against God. God makes it right. That's our faithful God. This is a God who uh, draws near, a God who makes himself known, the God who delivers all by his own initiative. We, just like Jacob, have failed. We find ourselves in a desperate predicament. 
But God makes things right in Jesus Christ. And he calls us all to turn from our sin and believe on him. Praise God that he is who he says he is. Let us all acknowledge these things. Take the rock, so to speak, and declare it. That this is where we can find God. Jesus is our rock in whom God reveals himself. The final and fullest revelation of him. Let's, re- let's pray and conclude. Our Father in heaven, Lord, this is a message that comes up over and over and over again, but yet, Lord, you know how thick-headed we are, and we need to hear it again and again and again. We thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness isn't hinged upon our faithfulness or our works or some sort of inherent goodness as if we actually had some. We thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness begins and ends in you. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who pledges yourself to us, your very own self. To do what you say you will do. Lord Jesus, we confess and we give you great praise and recognition that you are the gate of heaven. That you are the house of God. And so Lord, we thank you that we don't need a physical building or even a memorial like a stone to be reminded of these things. But we have seen you, we know you, we can read of you. And you indeed are the gate of heaven. Father, we pray that you would cause us to run to you in our situations and in our own sin. That we would not, in an ungodly sense, heap ungodly guilt on ourselves. But that we would run to you knowing that in Christ there is forgiveness of our sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, though you are holy in all of your splendor and your character and your glory, yet you take on the likeness of sinful flesh to walk amongst us. That you draw near to us in this, in your humility. Lord, we pray that we would follow you, confess our sins, and give ourselves to you. All by your grace. To the praise of your glorious grace, we pray these things. Amen.